Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation chapter 19. Our text this morning is chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 21, the end of the chapter. This is uh, the 24th of 27 messages through the book, so we're uh, nearing the end. <clears throat> Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Would you stand one more time so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word? Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we know, I ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. Pray that the preaching of the word might be a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. And we pray that you might do all you desire to do for the building up of your church, for the bringing to life of any who do not know you this morning. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I, I read a magazine article that had this paragraph in it. The FedEx logo is legendary among designers. It's won over 40 design awards and was ranked as one of the eight best logos in the last 35 years in the 35th anniversary American icon issue of Rolling Stone magazine. Nearly every design school professor and graphic designer with a blog has at some point focused on the FedEx logo. 
Now, if you're like me, that may sound a bit odd. Best math to put the logo up on the screen, and if you look at it, my first response is, it's just letters. I mean, sure, it's kind of fancy in that they abbreviated two words, federal and express. I guess it could be worse than bluish purple and orange, maybe mahogany and pink or something. But it's just letters. That's all it is. And that's what I thought until I read on in this article. And I discovered in the article that the entire logo was actually built around something, something that I had never seen. The entire logo is built around an arrow that exists between the E and the X. The designer of the logo wanted to build everything around this arrow that would communicate four direction and speed and precision. But he wanted it to remain hidden. He wanted us to look at the logo and maybe have an aha moment, like maybe some of you are having right there. There it is, right? I never saw it. Um, so I'd say mission accomplished. Uh, if you're like me, I feel like I looked at that logo a hundred times and that arrow only appeared two weeks ago. Uh, no doubt it's been there the whole time, but I never saw it. All I saw were five letters, F-E-D-E-X, that's it. And now, every time I look at it, I see that arrow. Right there it is. Well, when you come to Revelation 19, 11 through 21, I hope that we have a similar moment. I pray that the way you may have looked at this text your whole life, having seen a lot of the periphery of it, I hope this morning you'll see something that you may never have seen before. And I hope that you will see something <clears throat> that you can never look at this text again without seeing. You see, on the outset, just looking at the text, on the surface of it, you can read it and think, ah, oh, this is just another one of those gruesome, violent texts. And yes, there's a lot of violence here. Just, just work your way through the text briefly. We see John sees Jesus faithful and true, but, but he's very quickly reminded that he comes to make war in verse 11. He's riding a white horse. That's an image of victory over one's enemies. Uh, his eyes are like flames of fire in verse 12. In verse 13, he's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood, that's immersed in blood. Now, we might hear that and think, yeah, like the old rugged cross. That's not the imagery. The imagery here is that his, robed has, his robe has blood all over it because he is slaughtering his enemies. He has their blood on his robe. And it keeps going. Not only does he have a robe that's, that, that's just immersed in blood, but in verse 15, out of his mouth is coming a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You remember this scene? back in uh, a number of weeks ago, where, where Jesus is picturing the judgment of his enemies as grapes being thrown into a wine press that you would tread down and the juice would run out, but he's going to tread down his enemies so that their blood runs out. Again, gruesome scene. And it doesn't stop there. In verse 17, an angel cries for the birds ahead to come. Gather around. Why? Because he's going to slaughter his enemies so that they might be prey 
for the birds. The birds can come and eat the flesh off of all of those that you've slaughtered. And, and, and it's not like the text says they're going to eat the flesh of kings and captains and yada, yada, yada. It repeats flesh again and again and again. Eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. So if you're trying not to picture it, good luck. And that's not it there. They wage war against them, and then the false prophet and the beast in verse 20 are captured and thrown into a fire. But that's not enough. He wants you to know they were thrown alive into the fire. And then this sword that came out of his mouth with it, he slays the rest of those who followed the beast and the false prophets. And the text ends with, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. Yes, this text is a violently gruesome text. Yet, I think this entire text is built around a message of our Lord's faithfulness and love for His people. I think this text is given to us so that we might get a sense of just how strongly our Lord loves us. That we might get a sense of just how faithful He is to His promises. In some sense, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, I think is the perfect complement to Paul's prayer in the Ephesians that the Ephesian believers would begin to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of Jesus Christ's love for us. So when we look at this text, by the end of the sermon, I hope you look at this text and you say, all of these violent images and the gruesome nature of it is all built around this centerpiece of Christ's love for his peopleness and faith, uh, love for his people and faithfulness to his people. Love for people and faithfulness to his people. Therefore, I want to draw two truths and then two implications of those truths from the text. The first truth is this. Everything Jesus has promised, he will do. For he is faithful, true, and almighty. Everything Jesus has promised, he will do. For he is faithful, true, and almighty. Now as this vision begins, as John sees heaven opened and, and sees one sitting on a white horse whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he begins to mention his name. Verse 11, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In verse 13, this one who's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, he says the name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 16, uh, on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I have nothing to do with the three bird logo, actually. FedEx was the only one I'm, I'm showing, so look here, I guess. Um, but you can see he gives us these names, Faithful and True, Word of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it's not just these names. We find, we find these descriptions, right? Verse 12, his eyes are like flames of fire. Or um, in verse uh, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. No, roll them with a rod of iron. Now, when you look at these images, if you followed through the book, you think, you know what, I've seen some of this before. And indeed we have. Turn all the way back to chapter 1. And you'll remember in chapter 1, we have some uh, descriptions of Jesus Christ here, this vision that John sees of him. 
And it sounds much like what we see here. Chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is described as the faithful witness. Well, in chapter 19, he's the one who's faithful and true. Uh, he's called in verse 5, the ruler of the kings on earth. In Revelation 19, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Going on in verse 14 of chapter 1, the hairs on his head were like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The same thing we see in 19. And then finally in verse 16 of chapter 1, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So if nothing else, at this point we can say, well, it looks like a number of the qualities that were given to us to describe Jesus Christ in his glory in chapter 1 are now coming back in chapter 19. But there's something more that happened. You see, this vision of Jesus Christ that John saw in chapter 1, it didn't just fade into the background. You remember as we took week after week after week to work through the letters to the churches, they would often draw on this vision, wouldn't they? So look, for example, at chapter 2. Jesus uh, introduces himself as uh, the one who has all might and all power. Chapter 2, uh, verse 1, the word of, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is, this is one who has all might, who is, we might say, king of kings and lord of lords. And uh, he promises them uh, eternal life. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pergamum, to him write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's introducing himself in the same way we're going to see in chapter 19. Look what he promises them. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the one who has a sharp two-edged sword is now giving them a name no one knows. Verse 18 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Again, something we're going to see in 19. Look at the promise to them. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Something again we're going to see happen in chapter 19. So then when you turn back to chapter 19, what's interesting is that the promises that he gave to his church is something like, I'm going to give you a name no one knows, and I'm going to allow you to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Look what happens in chapter 19. These are becoming true of Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So now he has a name written no one knows but himself, but he promised them a name that no one knows. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, he's going to rule them with a rod of iron, but he promised his people if they overcame, if they persevered, if they conquered, they would rule the nations with a rod of iron. So what are we to see here with these connections? I think we're supposed to see a couple of things. One, we're supposed to see that everything Jesus promised, he's bringing about. And the reason he's able to bring them about is because he is faithful and true and almighty. You see when the text says that he's faithful and true, or that his name is the word of God, the idea is that 
he's going to do everything he says. He is faithful and true by definition. Uh, the Word of God, by definition, is always faithful, always true. So everything he said to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to bring it about. Did he promise them eternal life? Eternal life is going to be theirs. Did he promise them white robes? White robes are going to be theirs. He is faithful and true. But we also see by seeing, being reminded that he's king of kings and lord of lords, we remember that he's almighty. You see all kinds of people can say, I'm faithful, I'm true, I tried, I just couldn't do it. But Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, so everything He's promised, He will do. There's nothing that can stop Him. So we see, I think, this element that He's faithful and true, and therefore He's going to bring about all He's promised. But I think we see something even more here, and I think it's this. The way that He's going to faithfully fulfill the promises He made to His church is He's going to allow the church to benefit from Him. He's going to allow His church to be bound up with Him. So yes, I think when Revelation 19 says He has a name that no one knows but Himself, perhaps we can draw from that the idea that there are mysteries of Christ we'll never know. Perhaps we can draw from that, that, that He's not under our control. You remember the Old Testament? To name somebody, to name something, was to exercise authority and control. Adam named the animals because he has authority over the animals. Jesus comes on to the same naming his disciples because he has authority over them. Maybe then the reason we're supposed to see Jesus has a name no one knows along with these other names is that we're supposed to draw from that. Obviously, we have no authority over him and he's mysterious. I, I, I think that's fair to say. It's true. But I think the main thing we're to see when the text says he has a name no one knows is supposed to remember back that he promised his people to give them a name no one would knows. No one knows. And I think the idea is he's going to give them his own name. He's going to allow them to be characterized by him. He's going to allow them to, to be uh, bear his name, to belong to him. The same thing with ruling over the nations. The reason his people will be able to rule over the nations with a rod of iron is because they're united with Jesus Christ so that what's true of Christ is true of them. And if he rules over the nations with a rod of iron, then they too will rule with Christ. Do you see all of the promises Jesus made are coming true because he is faithful, he is true, he is almighty, and they are coming true because his people are bound up with him. And we receive the blessings of being united with Jesus Christ. Therefore, here's how certain His promises are. They are as certain and as sure as Jesus Christ is certain and sure. They are as faithful and true as Jesus Christ is faithful and true. The fact that you will get to reign with Christ is only dependent on whether Jesus Christ will reign, and He will. The only your eternal life is only dependent on whether or not Christ will live in eternity. And He will. All of our blessings are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. The certainty then, the faithfulness of God's promises, of Jesus Christ's promises, are to move us. Think about this, for example. Uh, there's a door over to my left where you can exit out into the parking lot. What if I told you that if you could find a way to get through that door, you would have no more health problems? Sure, we'll die, but between now and then, no more health problems. It's funny, I, as, I, as I wrote that illustration, I thought, I, I, I think my illustrations are now showing my, uh, that I'm aging. 
when I was younger, I was like, imagine that you could have all the strength in the world. Now I'm like, imagine your knees won't ache anymore, ever. You get, get that. The cold won't hurt your hips and knees when you run, hypothetically speaking. So what if then I could tell you, you make it through that door and it's certain, it's sure, no questions, you'll never battle with health issues again. Then if this stool fell over in your way, would it stop you? By no means, right? I mean, there would be people crawling if necessary to get through that door. I think the same idea is here. Jesus wants us to know everything I've promised you, the white robes, the eternal life, um, that you're going to reign with me, that you'll bear my name, that you'll have the crown of life, that you will be mine. It's certain and sure. Therefore, let nothing stop you from walking with endurance, from persevering, from remaining faithful. Let nothing stop you from pressing on in obedience. I don't care if the emperor is threatening you hold fast to the promise and say emperor you may threaten my life but Jesus' promises are faithful and sure and so I'm just holding fast to him holding fast to the testimony that's the message I think we're to get from Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 and following everything Jesus has promised he will do for he's faithful true and almighty but I also want to note another truth that one specific promise he's given us, is that he will deliver his people and conquer his enemies because he loves us. One specific promise is that he will deliver his people and conquer his enemies because he loves us. Yes, there's all kinds of mention, I think, of, of, of warfare and his robe dip in blood and these kinds of things in, in verses 11 through 16, but it really picks up in verse 17, doesn't it? Here's where we see this, this war of the Lord, uh, the angel, summoning the birds that fly directly overhead. Get ready to eat the flesh of God's enemies because Jesus Christ is about to slaughter them. And he does. Look at verse uh, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the very next phrase, and the beast was captured. He's thrown into like a fire. But what's going on in chapter 19, verse 19, I think we've seen before. Look back at chapter 16 and verse 13. These are the bowls of wrath. And with the sixth bowl, we read in chapter 16, verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. I think that's the same battle we're seeing here. Look at chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus tells us in the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, that is, this, their rebellion will last a short time, together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For, see if this sounds familiar, he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him, he's on a white horse, there also are his people with him on white horses. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. So I think this is a restating of that 
last battle when, when, when Satan and, and, and all of his fiends, the beast, the false prophet, and, are able to, to gather and deceive the nations of the world so that they decide they will wage war against the one who is our Redeemer. In every other example, it's just simply stated that they had been defeated. Here we get a little more imagery. Verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. You see what's happening here is along the way in the book of Revelation, we read about all the enemies that are coming against Christ and His people. So in chapter 12, we had the dragon. The dragon, the serpent of old, Satan himself, and he is waging war. He's been cast out of heaven. He is waging war against the church. We read in chapter 13 then, two other characters. He brings along two beasts. The first beast called the beast, the second beast, the false prophet. And he's employing these, the dragon, Satan himself, in his war against the church, is employing the first beast and the false prophet. So we said in history, these have been, there have been concrete examples of the beast and the false prophet. So you've, you've always had oppressive states or oppressing against the people of God, oppressing them and persecuting them. You had this in the first century with Rome, but it's not limited to Rome. We've seen this throughout all the age. We also have voices of deception, the false prophet who, who try to lure people into going along with rebellion against Christ through, through deceptive religious means and, and others. So they were introduced in chapter 12. In chapter 17, we saw the introduction of this great prostitute. So the, the, the worldliness of the culture just luring the Lord's people to come and, and make much of, of, of pursuing riches and power and their lusts. So we had the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and then the great prostitute. And now do you see what's happening in the text? Last week, the beginning of chapter 19, the great prostitute, the last one to be introduced... She's the first one to be eliminated. What's happening in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21? The beast and the false prophet are being thrown into the lake of fire. What's going to happen, happen in chapter 20? The devil, verse 10 of chapter 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is why I said last week, when Jesus is judging the great prostitute, He is beginning His uncontested reign. That's what these chapters are showing us. All of His enemies are being conquered. Here comes the great prostitute, the last one to come. She's put down. The beast, the false prophet are put down. The dragon is put down. And of course, all of those who follow them are judged as well. In chapter 19, they're slain by the sword. The end of chapter 20, they themselves will also be thrown into the lake of fire. So he's disposing his, of his enemies. It is a gruesome scene. I, I, I've already noted to you, uh, it's pictured in the birds coming and eating the flesh of his people. The false prophet and beast thrown alive into the lake of fire where they're going to be tormented day and night. Uh, the rest, those who follow the beast and the false prophet are slain by the sword. The birds gorge themselves with their flesh. What are we to make of this gruesome image? Well, imagine this. What if your son, and if you don't have a son, maybe you just can't think of this, but, but if you have a son, whom you love deeply, what if your son had been captured? 
and kidnapped. This, this happens sometimes, doesn't it? And the last uh, weekend, or two weekends ago, whenever it was, we were on our elders' retreat. We were driving, and there were, there were signs put up for, for a missing girl. I can imagine what that must be like. But imagine that your son had been captured, and he was being tormented. He was being tortured. He was being persecuted. And you found out where he was. And you know he's over there, and he's surrounded by ten men. Men who are saying, if you want to free your son, you're going to have to kill us. And all you're armed with is a sword. You don't say, oh, I think I'm opposed to violence. You go after him, don't you? And so imagine this scene then of a dad running as his son has been captured, he's been tormented, he's been tortured, he's been persecuted, and he runs through. And every enemy who comes in his way, who has done ill to his son, who has hurt the one you love, and he's just running through there with his sword and he's slaying his enemies left and right. And as he slays them, their blood is just drenching his garments so that finally when he slays the last enemy and he is standing there with his son ready to take him to himself, he's got the blood of his enemies He's running down his face. His garments are covered with blood. Does anybody look at that scene and say, man, that is a gruesome and violent man? Nope. It's true. But you look at that scene and you say, oh, what love. There was nothing that was going to stop that man from getting his son. When he looked at his son and said, I'm coming to get you. He was coming to get him. And it didn't matter if he had to slaughter every enemy and be drenched in their blood. He was coming. That's what chapter 19, 11 through 21 is. Jesus Christ has made promises to His people. He's faithful and true. He's almighty. Nothing's going to stop Him. He promised them eternal life. He's coming to bring them eternal life. He's promised them white robes. He's coming to give them white robes. He's promised them a crown of righteousness. He's coming to give them a crown of righteousness. He's promised them His name. He's going to come and give them His name. And nothing and no one is going to stop Him. And so this gruesome and violent scene of Jesus robing dipped in blood. And Him saying to the birds of the heavens, come eat on their flesh. That's His way of saying to you, I love you. And I'm coming to get you. And nothing will stop me. That's why remember back, chapter 1 as well, this vision of Jesus Christ and all His greatness, eyes burning like fire and, and hair white as wool and feet like burnished bronze. Do you remember what John said of Him in verse 5? The one He's about to describe is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. That's what this chapter's about. The one who loves us, coming and slaughtering every enemy that has come against us. Has Satan and sin and death and a number of enemies of Christ tortured his people throughout the ages? Indeed. This morning, as we sang and sang the line, death will be crushed to death. I just found myself weeping at that thought because I hate death. I hate it. I hate it. I hate what it does. So I, I, I hate 
the enemy of death, and I hate that people have to suffer by being left by those who have died, but one day no more. One day no more. One day the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and he will be destroyed. So this gruesome and violent picture is a picture of Jesus Christ saying, I love you and nothing will stop me from getting those for whom I have died. So if that's true, if He's faithful and true, and He's made this promise that He's going to deliver His people and conquer their enemies because of His love for us, how do we respond? Let me give you two implications. One, just to the unbeliever. Unbeliever, no longer resist Him, but bow the knee to Christ in faith. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please stop resisting Him. Every promise He's made, I've worded them from the perspective of us, those of us who believe, His people. He's coming to get us. If you've not placed your faith in Christ, you're His enemy. And every one of His promises are true for you as well. He says of His enemies, He will throw them into a lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever. He is true. He's faithful and true. His name's the Word of God. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing's going to stop Him from doing that. So please, please, in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord says to those walking in their sins, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. Wow, why will you die in your sins? When the Lord would rather that you turn. This morning I say to you, if you are in your sins right now and you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, then His wrath is against you. And every day you continue to walk with an unrepentant heart, you're storing up greater and greater wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, according to Romans 2. And Jesus Christ one day is going to bring down that wrath that you're going to bear for all of eternity. But you don't have to. You don't have to. Because God made a way for us to be reconciled to the one that we made our enemy. God, while we were His enemies, sent His Son into the world so that Jesus, the God-man, God the Son took on flesh so that Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life of obedience we couldn't live. He then died on the cross to pay for the sins of anyone in all the earth throughout all the ages who will believe in Him. On the third day, God raised Him from the dead victorious so that if you and I, if we will repent of our sins, turn from them, and rest by faith, trust in faith, say, I believe what Jesus Christ has done. I believe that happened, and I'm trusting that's my only hope for forgiveness of sins. That's my only hope for righteousness, that His righteousness is given to me. If you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled to God, made His children, and now the recipients of His promises of deliverance. So please, this morning, if you're not a believer, don't continue in your sin. Don't die in your sin when you don't have to. Come to Jesus Christ, and then as you do, be baptized to show that you've been united by faith with the one who lived and who died and who was raised. And then a message to the believer. Believer, Keep persevering in faithful obedience, knowing His promises are sure and certain. Keep persevering in faithful obedience, knowing His promises are sure and certain. Perhaps I should say, if you're not persevering, if you're walking towards sin, repent, and then persevere in faithful obedience. Listen, I know, I know 
Persevering, faithful obedience is hard. And as I said last week, some of you have been called to obey in contexts that are far more difficult than what I know. I, I, don't, I don't stand here this morning pretending I know what it's like to walk in faithful obedience in your circumstance. Lee, you don't know what it's like to walk having suffered the things I suffered. I don't. I'm not claiming that. And you may be right now called to obey Christ in a circumstance that nobody else in the church knows. Nobody's walked through that. And it's incredibly difficult. Kind of like when Jesus Christ said to His church back in these letters in chapters 2 and 3, He said, I'm gonna, some of you are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it looks like to be called to obey when Jesus is telling you you're about to be put in prison and it's going to end with your execution. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what your issues are like. What I do know is this. In every context in which we find ourselves, however difficult it may be, Jesus calls all of us to persevering faithful obedience. He says, keep persevering. Keep obeying. Keep pressing on. Keep walking in faith. And when you think to yourself, I can't do it anymore, remember His promises. The one who loves you is faithful and true and nothing will stop Him from bringing them about. Our life is, is like but a blip compared to eternity. So, this morning, if you've been struggling, thinking I'm growing weary, just be encouraged by this text. The one who loves you and nothing will stop Him from bringing all His promises, let it encourage you to keep on persevering. If you have already turned, I, I tried to persevere, but I, I've run after sin. We'll use this as an opportunity to turn around, to turn from that, and say, I want to repent of that sin and walk in faithful obedience. This morning, let that be your response to the Bible. We're going to take a moment of silence. In this moment of silence, yes, there's some strategic advantage to having a moment of silence. It allows the ushers to come forward. It allows the musicians to get in place. But there's another aim we have. This moment of silence allows each of us just to pause, having heard the Word of God, and respond to the Word. Every one of us. So in this time of silence, maybe you just need to stop and say to the Lord, Lord, give me the grace to obey you because here's how I feel you've moved me to respond. Maybe you want to say this morning, Lord, I need to repent. I want to confess my sin. I trust that your forgiveness is, is, is true and is faithful and now help me to walk in obedience. Whatever your response needs to be, use this time to respond to the Lord in silence. Let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.